in three, two, one, and we're live. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Is this not why you were here? How about new, you crazy Dutch bastard? What we've got here is failure to communicate. 60% of the time, it works. Every time. That doesn't make sense. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. That's cute. I remember when I had my first beer. Why so serious? I am serious. I don't call me stuff. What's up, everybody? It's Dads That Drink, and it's Friday night. Tonight, we have a very, very special guest that we want you guys to really pay attention to. Everyone remembers where they were on 9-11. Well, this guy knows where he was, and he was also at the end of that. Tonight, we have Will Chesney. He served in the United States Naval Special Warfare Development Group as an operator and a dog handler. He participated in Operation Neptune Spear, which resulted in the death of Osama bin Laden. Chesney received a Silver Star and a Purple Heart and now helps veterans who have suffered from traumatic brain injury. Please help me in welcoming Will Chesney. Will, how are you? Well, guys, how are you? Great. Thanks for coming on. You there, Will? How about now? How about now? Still can't hear you. We're we're off to a great start. Jeff, can you hear him? I did a second ago. It was working a while ago. Oh, there it is. He's back on my end. All right. How about this? Can everybody hear now? Nope. Okay. So how about now? Yeah. You can hear? Everybody can hear. Well, we are off and running. Uh, Jeff, this is a big one tonight. I know. Um, What's that? I said, I know it is. So, Will Chesney, we have you here, and we had a little bit of technical difficulty. Of course, always when we have the big guesses, when we have technical difficulty, it never fails. We can go on by ourselves. Everything goes perfect. We bring someone on, and it goes to crap. So, Will You wrote the book, No Ordinary Dog, and it talks about you and your dog, Cairo, uh, that you were a dog handler in the Navy SEALs. So right off the bat, let's let's just talk about, first off, uh, 9-11, where you were, what it got you thinking about, and we'll kind of go from there throughout your career. Yeah, 9-11, I was in high school. I remember watching the towers fall while I was in the the library, and um, it was a terrible day. I'll never forget that day. And you're a Tex- You're from Texas as well, right? What's your hometown? Uh, Lumberton. Lumberton. Okay. Yeah, from Texas. Yeah, I'm from College Station, and uh, I remember I was working for my dad. I was I was fresh out of graduate school, coaching football, and uh, I walked into his office, and he had it on TV that morning, and I I, I remember somberly exactly what was going on. It was uh, 
pretty terrible day. Where were you at, Dustin? Uh, I was in the military. I was stationed at Fort Huachuca, um, and I had just had surgery to repair my ankle about two weeks prior, and I was supposed to be in Washington, D.C. at Bethesda Naval Center that next Friday. And uh, I called him and said, uh, I don't think I'll make it. Uh, so. <laughs> so I was the only chump not serving our country. Thanks a lot, guys. Well, that that's okay. But so, Will, you see it. You have a dream that you want to be uh, a Navy SEAL. Uh, you, As soon as you graduate, you uh, apply into the Navy. Uh, you take all your stuff. You go to the Navy. You go to boot camp. Uh, right off the bat, you have problems, though. So let's kind of go over wanting to go after that Navy SEAL and then kind of what sidelined you and then how you fix the problem. Yeah. So there's always going to be something, I guess. Right. So, uh, in my contract, I guess I didn't, uh, pick the proper school. Submariner school took me out of the contract that eligibility to go to buds. So <laughs> when I got there, there was a submarine chief. He was, he wasn't going to fix my contract at first cause he wanted to, he just knew that, you know, a bunch of kids were going to buds and 80% of them were going to quit. I had this nice submarine job and the nice submarine contract and he was an old submariner. So he's like, Hey man, you're just some young kid. You're probably going to end up quitting. Let me not change your uh, contracts so you can you know, keep this job that you got. But uh, I ended up convincing him. Like that was pretty much the only reason I was there, obviously. So I forget exactly how the conversation went down, but he ended up changing it. So well, you're pretty, pretty persuasive, at least. I had to be a little bit persuasive. <laughs> and, and you mentioned in the book, you said that you, you were kind of at a, uh, a brick wall because you thought, I just joined the Navy. I want to become a Navy SEAL, which is, to be honest, probably the most dedicated to their job uh, and dedicated to the Navy. And you didn't want to seem like you were insubordinate. And you thought, okay, how do I approach this? I, I got to tell him, you know, if... I can't get Navy SEALs. I'd rather you send me home. And that's pretty much how it went down, uh, according to the book, correct? Uh, yeah. Maybe in maybe in better terms. I wish I could go back and re-listen to that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> hear exactly how it went down. But, yeah, that was the only reason I was there. So I just informed him that if I wasn't going to Bud's, there's really no point in me sticking around. I think he got the point, though. So ended up working out. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, so we've had Clint Bruce. I don't know if you know who Clint Bruce is, but he yeah. was a Navy SEAL. We had him on earlier, and, and he talks about, you know, who makes the, the best leaders of Navy SEALs. Um, can you tell me kind of before you got in, what's your background? Obviously, you're a you're probably an athletic guy, smart, um, um, strong, all those things. But what are some of the attributes that you saw in yourself that led you to have the confidence and the challenge of going to be a Navy SEAL? Yeah, so I was actually just pretty average. It's a pretty average athlete, pretty average student. Maybe a little bit above average, but um, the one thing that separated me from everybody else is that maybe that persistence. <laughs> that uh, I just got, <clears throat> I feel like I got fortunate to find something that I really wanted to do with my life early on. And um, that was it, man. I found a goal. I dedicated everything to it, and nothing was going to stop me. I ended up Ended up working out pretty well. And so your job originally was, uh, if I remember correctly, machinist mate in the Navy, correct? That's yeah. the A school you went to. 
information technologist, I think was the first one. We had to change that to machinist. <laughs> so, so we went from uh, submariner <laughs> to that to machinist mate, then on to Navy SEALs. So, yeah. and uh, in your Navy SEAL, uh, you actually, it kind of worked out in your favor because you went to machinist mate school. You you get done with machinist mate school, and it's uh it, it's it's time to go over to the seals. But you actually got to go early and work with the class before yours. Um, is that a? I've never heard of that before. Is that like a? Is that like a normal thing, or did you just fall under a lucky star on that, or how did that work out? Yeah, I think I got pretty lucky. I don't think it's unnormal, but I don't think it's too normal. Just worked out well with the timing i just I didn't have anything going on at my previous school and there's a couple of bodies that they need to help out with the classes going through so i just got really lucky I, I wanted to get out of there and get to coronado and me showing up early allowed me to uh get to see some cool things get to see the class that was graduating going through third phase it was a it was a pretty cool sight to see the, the guys that uh you know, they were almost done. Yeah, and, and so I, I guess you get to see a little bit about the SEAL training that you'll be headed into. Is that correct? I mean, you, you, you I guess you were kind of, we what we called it in the Army was kind of op four. You got to work as, I guess, the guys that are going against them because they were in third phase, correct? Yeah, they were in third phase. So we did a little bit of the op four stuff, and all the other work that the instructors didn't want to do. Yeah. Right. Right. So you go there now, when you go there, do you have to, I mean, are you falling under like their physical standards and things like that? Or are you just there kind of working as a, you know, just kind of, Hey, I'm filling in a slot for right now. Just there to work, fill in the slot. And they, they would have fun with us during the day. Just, <laughs> you know, make you go get wet and Sandy, go run up the hill. So but we were working out on our own as well too but we were there just to do all the grunt work. Well, and, and speaking of working out, you know, when you were in basic, uh, you thought, well, it'll be easy to maintain and, and get ready, you know, to be in shape for, but you actually gained weight and stuff. But since you were going to Navy SEALs, you got to work out what, two extra days a week, or you got to go with some SEALs and work out. Yeah. It was a few days a week. And I didn't expect to get that out of shape in boot camp. <laughs> you gained what like 10 15 pounds i don't even know there was, was quite a bit of sitting around boot camp <laughs> so uh, you know i guess you guys don't have like pt in the mornings and stuff like that or do you and it's like on an exercise bike or wh what are we talking about yeah i don't think there was too much pt you can just do everything <laughs> Yeah, see, that, that seems crazy because in the Army, you know, you go to PT every morning. That's like their big thing is you get up early to go to PT and stuff. So whenever I, I you know, that was in the book, I was like, wow, that, that's strange. But at least you got to work out with those guys. So really, you got to see Navy SEALs in basic. You got to see Navy SEALs before you actually started, bud. So you, you got a real eye opener. And I think for most people, that would turn them away completely. They would see, I'm not putting up with this shit for as long as it's going to happen. But it, it kind of emboldened your stance, correct? It was good to be around some instructors and start doing the program. And uh, yeah, everybody that didn't want to be there, they would start to disappear. I mean, I would assume if you had a quiver of a doubt 
going into that, you were screwed. Like you have to go in there, you know, conquer the world and take as much shit as you can and take more shit. So I would imagine like, like Dustin alluded to, um, you kind of got, got extra shit and, uh, you got the brunt of it. So, um, coming through all that and then following through and, and making it through is a pretty, pretty big accomplishment. And, um, um, a lot of people probably couldn't get through that first part before they even went in. So, um, that's, that's pretty badass. They definitely make you prove that you want to be there. That's for sure. right. Yeah, don't show up unprepared. And yeah, like I said, it was pretty, it make you want it, but it's pretty fun. You know, get to hang out with a bunch of good group of guys and, Sure, it sucks for a little bit here and there, but in between, it's pretty fun. Well, and you know, you're you're a very loud guy, as people can tell already, and very <laughs> very uh, very boisterous. Uh, you you were a quiet guy, and you just kind of slipped into the ranks in in uh, buds. So let's talk about buds for a little bit. Everyone's heard of it. Everyone's watched the movie Navy Seals. You know, everyone thinks they know but I don't think they really know what goes on there. So you get the bud, you're what, 20, 21 years old? Barely 18. Oh, really? Yeah. I That's right. Cause you went directly in. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, you weren't even, because did you graduate when you were 17? No, I signed up when I was 17. Okay. So you, so you get there, you're 18 years old. You, you start buds. You, you are, you know, so excited to head in this direction. You seem to kind of blend in. You you allude to that a couple times that you just kind of blend in. Uh, and so you go there, you start. Let's talk about buds. So you get there. What's your initial? What's your initial thoughts as you come into this? It was great. I was in Coronado, California, living on the beach. I came from a trailer park in Southeast Texas. I, I love it. <laughs> and the weather was nice. Um, I was an 18-year-old kid. I had nothing better to do. So I loved it. I loved every bit of it. All I got to do is uh, get your nuts kicked in a little bit and <laughs> get to have some fun. So I got to say, Will, I, you do strike me as uh, you have that switch mentally where you, you, you challenge yourself and you don't mind getting kicked in the nuts, evidently. And uh, like you said, you left a situation that may not have been ideal and you were uh, uh, on these beautiful beats. I've been to Coronado. It is beautiful, by the way. But um, what is the first day? I mean, just take us through like the first day of that. Is it instant kick your ass, break you down? And how does that progress uh, in, in buds? No, this is kind of the, uh, I guess, the environment you walk into. It's, I can't even remember showing up the first day. I don't think anybody was there to hold your hand. You just kind of... <laughs> out and get checked in on yourself and by yourself and then you have a couple of guys that will run around and help you out but um yes yeah, just the beginning first day is the instructors are beating you and you're running around uh, push-ups and pull-ups getting wet and sandy it's just all you know some days are harder than others and some days you do different things but it's all it's all basically the same kind of concept uh, any instructors that, that stood out to you? Yeah, I guess they all, they all had their own personalities. There was a few that stood out that were a little meaner than the others. Uh, yeah, there was this one instructor that kept, he was one of the bigger instructors, one of the meaner instructors. He, 
he would break into our room sometimes and leave it unlocked and he'd steal all of our stuff and go to the front <laughs> office and collect our things and it was never fun, you know. So don't leave your don't leave your stuff unlocked. Kellerman, you'd see him creeping around if you slept in in the morning on the weekends and he was around. You'd see him sticking his head in everybody's room and checking on making sure you weren't doing nothing. So it was pretty I kept it interesting. <laughs> uh, you know, so you're you're at Bud, you're loving life, you're on the beach. Uh, it's it's not necessarily uh, the beach life that everyone's thinking of. We have some questions uh, already coming in that uh, is saying, for us of those who don't know, what is Bud's? Can you explain just a quick overview to what Bud's is? Yeah, base, Bud's is basic underwater demolition seal train, so six to seven month selection process where it's, uh, some people say it's some of the uh, world's hardest military training. And I, would, I would have to agree with that. It's pretty, uh, pretty rigorous. You make it through that process, then you can become a SEAL. Well, kind of. Maybe. <laughs> and we'll get to that in a minute. Cause I, I thought that was pretty interesting. After you graduated, you go to jump school, you come back, you, you go to your uh, even more of a qualifier for the SEALs, and then you go over to SEAL Team 4. So we're still in BUDS. We're still training. Anything that sticks out to you, uh, any stories? Uh, I, I'm thinking of one in particular about a swim that you had there, and uh, it didn't quite turn out the way you wanted it to, but it didn't turn out bad for you either. So if you can tell us, just, just to give people an idea of the physical uh, things that your body's going through. Yeah, that swim could have definitely turned out a lot worse. It was a <laughs> five and a half mile nautical mile ocean swim without stopping. Uh, it was, there's two, excuse me, there's two uh, great sleeps that I've got. One was after Hell Week, which is five and a half days of pretty much no sleep and getting your ass kicked the whole time. That was the best sleep I ever got. And then the second best sleep I ever got was after the five and a half mile swim. That was a, that was a really good one. But I ended up, I guess we didn't pass the time, me and my swim buddy, during the swim. So just as we were finishing, the instructor advised us that we would be doing it again the next day. And I was oh, like, shit. Yeah, that was a real <laughs> best sleep I've ever got in my life. So, You're doing it so again. Speaking of times, about what what is the expected time or, or what is the cutoff for you to to get this five and a half nautical mile swim? Anyway, no idea, man. I wasn't. I didn't even know there was a time. <laughs> he just told you you didn't cut it, huh? Yeah, it just needed to be a little bit faster, I guess. But uh, yeah, the next morning ended up being a pretty big disaster. We won't ruin the story. I was uh, it was not a good time in my life. It was a real bad time, Bob. It was a, uh, it was terrible. I lost my, uh, yeah. It ended up working out pretty well though. And you know, and after after uh, reading the book, and when they tell you, you know, hey, you didn't make the time, I can hear it in your voice from hearing you uh, on the book and stuff, just kind of going, "Thank you," and walking off to your room and and going to sleep. <laughs> That's all you could do. Yeah. Just hopefully I can pass tomorrow. And you were thinking, man, I, I'm smoked from this. I don't know how I'm going to get up the next morning. And then you had trouble the next morning when you get down to the beach. Yeah, no, I had some huge trouble the next morning. I don't want to ruin the story. But all I was going to do is kick until I couldn't kick anymore, I guess. And that was the plan. I didn't really think I'd make it another five and a half miles. But you never know what you can do until you try. 
That's true, and 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 your point of view on it was was pretty good by just going, yeah, well, uh, all right, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> well, I imagine your body at that point is going to start cramping up and giving out on you, and the water's not real warm and yeah, all that fun stuff. So I would just kick until they had to come pull me out. Right. See if I'm still around. <laughs> So do we want to leave the end of that story for what happened or, or can we go into that? Go ahead. Yeah. So, uh, he, he gets there, he, uh, gets ready to go in, uh, loses a fin <laughs> before he gets in, uh, a wave hit you right. And took the fin. Yeah. It was nice and dark. Nice. And <laughs> a wave hits me. I knocked, knocked my fin out of my hand. I was pretty tired still, obviously. From the five and a half miles before, and but we got lucky. The uh, they uh, they called us in last minute. <laughs> they were just joking with us. Oh shit! One of my best friends ended up finding my fin as we were coming in, and he handed it to me. So ended up being a. Re- it went from a pretty shitty day to a really good day. So you you I I had watched a couple of interviews with you uh, when you were talking about this kind of stuff, and you said that they asked you what was your best memory of buds or what what did you remember most, and and it was interesting to me. Your answer was that graduation was uh, the thing that kind of stuck in your mind. Is there a reason why that it stuck in your mind like that, or is it just because it was you were finally done, or you knew that you were on to the next phase, or what was it about it that made it stick out in your mind so much? Yeah, graduating buds is definitely a huge accomplishment. I mean, just getting through Holy Cologne is a really big deal. There was a few moments in buds that I won't forget, and graduation is definitely top of the list. Everybody's family was there, and you know. Just because you make it through Hell Week doesn't mean you're going to make it through Buds. And just because you make it through Buds doesn't mean you're going to be a SEAL, but at least you made it through Buds. <laughs> right. And, and let's go into that a little bit. So you graduate from Buds. Uh, I, I It gets a little fuzzy whether you went to jump school first or uh, your kind of quality. It, it's SRT, correct? Uh, SQT. SQT, I'm sorry. Uh, jump school and SQT, and it's a little fuzzy. I couldn't really figure out which one you went to first, but you you go to jump school at Benning, you do the SQT, uh, and then once you're done with all that, then you're kind of really officially a SEAL until you go to your first assignment, and you go to SEAL Team 4 right off the bat, right? Team 4, yeah, you got to go through a few schools, SQT, and then you show up to your team. And then when you show up to your team, uh, let's let everyone know what you do with your uh, Trident then. Yeah, you're still in the probationary period. So still not a school yet. <laughs> you still have to prove it. So they, they take it from you and tell you, we'll let you know when you can wear this. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Shit, it never ends. It never ends. <laughs> Even when you get your Trident, you still are on the chopping block. It never ends. So you go, uh, you you do uh, some more training. You get some pretty good schools. You get comms school, which uh, not a lot of people uh, kind of put in for, but you kind of jumped headfirst into it, went to comms. Uh, then you also went to uh, sniper school uh, that you really wanted to go to. And then you uh, got certified as JTAC too, correct? I did. Yeah, I got lucky with the comms school that kind of fell on my lap. And me being a young kid, I didn't care. And uh, that was a very good school. Ended up getting in with that trifecta right there. Made myself pretty valuable. So, 
the more valuable all the more missions you get to go on worked out and i think maybe the sooner you get to get that trident back from everyone and get to wear it yeah but even though you get it back doesn't mean you can still stick around <laughs> but it is nice getting it back <laughs> doesn't mean you're still going to be there. I, I mean, do you ever feel like, I mean, I guess part of it is, you know, y'all, y'all are trained on a whole different level of uh, physicality and, and men, mentally tough and, and, and uh, you know, y'all are weapons yourselves, but do you ever feel like you've made it? Or are you just one of the boys always going to the next mission, doing whatever they ask you to do? Yeah. I think you're just always there. If you're smart, you're just lucky enough to just realize that you're lucky enough to be there and not let your ego take it, get out of control. But yeah, man, you're just hanging out, just one of the guys. And it's doing the best you can do. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of good dudes to keep up with. So they keep you on your toes. So you get to seal team four, you do two deployments to the middle East in seal team four. Is that correct? Yeah. So you do two deployments. Now, uh, let's go, let's start with your first deployment with SEAL Team 4 over there. Uh, what do they got you doing? W you know, what's your uh, op tempo? How, how's that working out over there? Uh, and let me explain to everyone real quick. Op tempo is how often you're going out on missions, what what kind of the mission is. Um, you, you get over there, you're still a pretty young guy. What, now you're what, 21 maybe? 20 maybe? Yeah, get to SEAL Team 4, 20, 21. Yeah, 2021. So you're 2021 with one of the most elite fighting units in the in the whole world. You're over there. Uh, what's your op tempo look like uh, once you hit ground over there? Slow. First of all, really, we're doing some PSD, some security for the higher ups over there, and went on a few ops, but nothing. It was a uh, pretty low key. Hmm. And how how did you uh, how long did you spend over there on this first deployment? We bounced around about three months. Three months? Yeah, traveled around a little bit, some, some other places. Uh, so we, so let me ask you guys this: so, so most deployments in sales are they they're usually six months? Is that correct? And then you have like eighteen month cycles, or does that vary in somewhere in between that? It varies, but some yeah that that time it was six months. Went down to South America for a little bit. And if I'm not mistaken, you're part of the dev, right? Yes, I was eventually. Okay. It's still team four. So uh, we're over there. You, you do your three months. You come back. Um, have we run across in this right now? Have you even been to the presentation that's talking about uh, military working dogs yet? When you come back, is that when you go to this presentation? Sounds about right. Okay, so you come back, you go to this presentation about military working dogs, you kind of see what they're all about. And it was just pretty much a presentation to go to. It wasn't necessarily to sign up for anything, but um, people, you know, go and, and it wasn't just SEALs. There was a bunch of people there just to kind of show what this new um, kind of organization within the military was doing for all the armed services and things like that. But you kind of get it in your head there. You, it's not really at the top of it, but you think, Hey, that would be kind of a cool job. Um, but you just kind of see what they're doing right then. Right. Yeah. It was just a quick show guy in a bike suit with the handler the guy in the suit takes off running and handler sends the dog. And I think it was actually one of my buddies that had the suit on 
put one of us in there. It was all funny. We all had a good time laughing at him. The dog tackles him. It wasn't didn't go into too much detail. And yeah, there was a lot of people around. It was just a quick, just a quick demonstration of how a dog can take someone down really quickly. It's cool to see. But no, it didn't really stick in my head right then at the time that I wanted to work with dogs. But it definitely showed me some of the capabilities. Right. And and like you were saying, that kind of that trifecta, that kind of adds to it. Um, whenever you, you know, sniper, comms, uh, JTAC, uh, and being a, a dog handler kind of makes you, I don't want to say indispensable by, by any means, but it definitely uh, puts you up there with being able to do pretty much any kind of mission that might come across the table. So, you're still SEAL Team 4. You deploy on your second deployment. Now, the op tempo kind of steps up on that one, correct? Yeah, definitely stepped up a lot. We were going to Solder City quite a bit. so. And you were in Baghdad, correct? Yeah. Okay. Uh, you're running sniper missions there, correct? It was for a little bit. Mm-hmm. So any sniper missions that we can talk about on here, uh, I don't want to, you know, do anything that, that's not allowed, but is there any that kind of stick out in your mind? There's a couple of good ones over there, but nothing crazy. There's one that covers in the book about some, some bad guy that was acting really weird on top of the roof. You can tell when they're good and when they're bad. <laughs> the guys that are coming out looking, they're just looking. And then the guys that are sneaking around the rooftops are usually up to something. So... You know, we were working with the foreign nationals. The foreign national called me over and told me there was a bad guy. Saw that he was a bad guy, ended up engaging him, and that was the guy we were going after. He's just a. Yeah, it was a, a bunch of my guys were down there, and they were they had been throwing grenades off the rooftops at us, and I didn't want mm-hmm. to. Ended up being the guy we were looking after. And um. Which which kind of worked out well because it ends up being the guy that you're looking for. But not only that, we're talking about it at night. You're watching over. You see this guy moving around. Uh, I if I remember correctly, he might have been on the phone and stuff like that on a on a cellular phone and things like that. This guy gets taken out, and you you don't even know right then that that is the guy. You find out later on that that was the guy that you guys were actually looking for. Correct? Yeah, definitely. Still, yeah. Still pretty early. Still pretty new. The guy was definitely acting shady, and um, yeah, you never, you never really know. But especially being that young and that new, it was um, knowing what I know now. That guy was definitely one hundred percent bad. Had <laughs> the local national saying, "Hey, there's a bad guy over there." Like, yeah, okay. Yeah. You know, I watched. I will say, I watched some different podcasts and different interviews you did, and and. Uh, um, I guess I watched some of the mic drop. Um, I think it was called mic drop. Um, and uh, he talked about your different ops and stuff. And, you know, it, at some point it came just up, you know, the next mission and the next guy. And it just becomes about that. Hey, complete the mission, you know, next, next person up that you're going after. So is it kind of come, become that and you, you maybe not even recognize names or anything. You're just going after the bad guy and go get them and go on to the next thing. Yeah, definitely. I feel bad these days. I don't remember a lot of names, but it didn't really matter to me. Just what are they doing and what's the intelligence? Go after you have to trust the intelligence, right? You do your job. You're there for something. You trust the intelligence and, and, and go do it. Yeah. 
it's important to know who you're going after and what they've done. But a lot of the time, I mean, even if I did remember their name, it's gone not too long afterwards. Probably not their their name, but definitely their faces uh, and you know what you're looking for. Um, I think names after a while kind of blend in all together. Uh, so let's let's move a little forward. You've done two deployments now. You you've definitely made yourself known as a SEAL. Where do we go next in your career? That's when I screen for Dev Group. That's okay. Over there. And and if you can explain, because there's people on here that have no idea what is what is Dev. It's just a different team. So you have to go through buds all over again, and it's more performance based instead of uh, just having to try to quit like buds does. And if you're selected, you get to go to a different team. And they they take more. Uh, I guess you would say high profile missions. You'd say that. Yeah. And yeah. Money. Um, I, I never want to say that, that uh, they, they take more important missions, but, but they're definitely uh, higher priority missions. Uh, maybe uh, bigger things that need to be dealt with in the world. So you, you try out, you make it to this group. Now we start looking towards, working the dogs, correct? Yeah, my first deployment with my squadron, I just saw how valuable the dogs were. And there's a Ooh. saying in the book, I remember being in the team room and somebody saying, raise your hand if a dog ever saved your life, and everybody's hand in the team room. Oh, yeah. You have plenty of stories to tell of the dog saving your life. And like you said earlier, just making myself more valuable. So the more valuable I am, the more the more missions I get to go on. So I saw how valuable the dogs were. And I love dogs. And you were in about six years to that time until you started being a dog handler, correct? Sounds about right. And so you go over there, you work with these dogs. Let's talk about a couple of those dogs because those those were those definitely weren't Cairo, which was your dog. But these dogs definitely have a place in your heart. Uh, so let's talk about a couple of them that you worked with and and why they were so important to you over there. Yeah, they um. They literally lay down their lives to save ours. The dog that I was supposed to get before returning home from my first deployment was um, it's a dog named Falco. And he didn't. He ended up getting shot by uh, some guys that were trying to ambush us. He didn't want to home, so that's how I ended up getting Cairo. But there's a, there's all kinds of dog stories to tell. And there's well, and and I, I would like to talk about that one specifically. Let's let's talk about Falco because not only did that mission happen that night and and what happened with Falco, but it changed the way um, that you even down to a very minimum level music that you listened to before a mission because of what happened. So, walk us through the mission um, where where Falco um, was ultimately um killed it was two guys and set up an ambush waiting for us to get closer uh, when we were getting closer they were just going to start shooting us we had the dog out front the dog ended up engaging them before we could get there um, while falco was biting one of the guys another guy ended up shooting him through the side twice Falco didn't end up making it, but it allowed us to see where the guys were and engage them before they could shoot one of us. It was a 
kind of the same similar Cairo got shot in a similar sort of way when he got shot. And I mean, there's, there's all kinds of dog stories that sometimes they work out. Okay. Cairo ended up surviving his. Um, sometimes they don't, a lot of the times they don't work out so well. Yeah. That's what I, what I hear you said is that a lot of times when a dog uh, suffers a gunshot wound, it, they don't make it through that. Um, it's a large bull, such a small dog. Sure. So they don't make it. So you're supposed to get Falco. Falco uh, sadly does not make it back. You get Cairo. Uh, and, and in reading your book from, you know, the first time that you're with Cairo, um, you can tell that you build that love between you and him. Not immediately, but it, it's a very, um, it's a very quick relationship. So, um, let's go through the process of, of how they find Cairo, uh, all the, the things that they do with them. I, I want to talk about the groups that go over there and get him, um, how they bring him back and then how you two ultimately get to introduced to each other. So we had a bunch of trainers, and, uh, people that run the dog program handlers, they go overseas and they purchase the dogs and bring them back for us. I never got to go on the, on a bike trip. But, um, as soon as we returned home from that deployment, I obviously wasn't going to get Falco. Um, there was a couple of new handlers, a couple of seals, a couple of mastered arms. We also had some of those guys working with us to handle a dog. Uh, it was a new group of guys and a new group of dogs. As soon as we got back from that deployment, we just started putting hands on dogs and the trainers would watch the personality of the dogs and the personality of the handler. You know, every, everybody's different. Every dog's different. So they make the assessments of, the mastered arms probably had more experience handling a dog and we had more experience being seals. So trainers did a good job matching up the personalities really nice. It was really good to be able to put hands on all kinds of different dogs. Cause once you got your dog, you're pretty much working mostly him. So it was good to get the, uh, different experience, different hands on dogs, get to watch your guy, the other guys put, put the hands on all the different dogs as well. So it was just a, it's a real good eye-opening eye experience. And then we were off to California for eight or nine weeks, which was a really great school, uh, Adler Horse International. This was great. It was uh, just you in a hotel room training all day with your dog and spending all night with them in the hotel room. It's, it's a, it was a really good bond to be, it's good to be away from work, not being, uh, so close to all that, getting sucked into other stuff. It was good to just be able to concentrate just you and your dog and just dog training for, for that long period of time. And, you know, man and his dog, it's, it's classic, you know, you know, when you're a kid, a boy and his dog, you know, man and his dog. But can you speak to the the intimacy you, that's created? Um, you know, it's from what I've read, it's, it's, it's like one of your kids. It's, you know, it's like, you know, father-son relationship almost. Can you speak of the intimacy and the bond that's created through the training and then going on missions? Yeah, it's pretty much like I'm his dad and everybody else are his uncles. And just think about how much you love your dog at home. Everybody pretty much loves their dog. If you're, if you're a dog person, you love your cat, whatever, whatever floats your boat. <laughs> <laughs> just imagine that and then getting to shoot and skydive and repel the dog getting shot for me and just being a part of some really cool things just it was definitely quite the bond 
Even so, probably willing to get shot for you. Just kind of amplified that alone. Jeff's more of a fish guy. Uh, he, uh, so it, it, you have Cairo. You guys are going through the school. You are in this hotel, staying with each other at night. Let's talk a couple things about Cairo first. Um, from what I get in this book, Cairo is kind of a bed hog. Um, and always wants to be kind of the most important thing in the bed, uh, pushed up next to you, even if it means that you will have an uncomfortable night of sleep. Yeah, he put his paws right in your face. It was uh, it was different, man. He looked like a wolf. So when I first got him, <laughs> he, he kind of looked like a little miniature wolf. Yeah. Like I'm, I got a wolf laying in bed with me here. <laughs> so was, we, were, we were both new. We didn't really know each other. But like you said, that bond grew pretty quick after it was probably less than a week. I just saw his temperament and how laid back he was. And I would start letting him sleep in bed with me, but yeah, you can only get away with so much. And he starts hitting me in the face with his paws at night. He had to go. Well, and, and I think, uh, you know, from talking to you on the phone and, and doing this interview, I think you and Cairo have pretty much the same kind of temperament. I, I, I think I would be correct in that. Just kind of laid back, doing what you got to do. But what was different about Cairo was he was laid back, but he could turn it on in an instant, turn that switch and, and go to work. Um, and that even happened in your hotel room uh, one night when he, I guess, thought he saw something on the wall or felt something was on the wall or something was going on beyond the wall. And just so people understand the the kind of uh i i guess in intuity that that these dogs have can you kind of go over that story of of uh cairo in the hotel room they were just laying there watching tv one night and he said growling something he wouldn't stop it was up in the top left corner of the room and i don't know like i said i didn't know him very well he didn't know me so I didn't really know exactly how what to do. I mean, these days, obviously, I know I knew him well, but back then I didn't know him that well. It was just really weird. Couldn't ever figure out what he was growling at. But yeah, checked outside, told him to bite. Just uh, he just stared at that one spot for quite a long time, and eventually, it must like, have been a haunted hotel or something. Who knows what he saw? <laughs> We've oh, done some of those <laughs> bushes. Some ghost up there. He never told me. I don't know. Yeah. 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 Uh, uh, so you guys get together, you go through the school, uh, you have a great working relationship. Um, from all accounts, he, he knows what he's doing. He's got a good bite. He's got uh, a good working sense. Uh, he hates wearing the booties and stuff over rough terrain, but that seemed to be about his only downfall was that uh, he didn't like wearing the booties too much. Um, but he turns out to be just this spectacular working dog for you. Um, so as we talked about through Bud's training and all that kind of stuff, let's talk a little bit about the school and the training for these dogs and what they go through. Because, I mean... Technically, they are trying to become, I know it's going to sound crazy saying this, but they are becoming Navy SEALs too. They are going through selection. It might not be the same as Bud's, but they're definitely being judged on everything they do and if they're able to handle the missions and handle this job. So let's go over a little bit of what goes on in that school for these dogs. 
you know, they have to be able to keep up with us. They have to be able to go everywhere that we go. So they go through their own doggy buds, I guess. And we start with just the temperament of the dog, the fight. She's a good fit there. And you know, obviously all of the dogs that we select are going to have a good drive to them. And they're going to be be able to be around gunfire and slick floors and you just kind of escalate from there and see if they'll be able to skydive and propel and you're just looking for the temperament that can go through all that stuff and just not be a spaz as well <laughs> has a good head on their shoulders they can be around an automatic weapon after getting on a off of a helicopter and not bite who's not supposed to bite so there's a lot of work that goes into selecting the dogs and then once we have the dogs selected there's I mean, there's a lot of work that goes into making a seal. And can we can we talk about some of the the physicality and the traits of like Cairo? Cairo's a Belgium. How do you say it? Malinese? Uh, yeah. And so, what was this plane weight? Like 70 pounds. Um, these dogs can run like what up to 40 miles per hour. Have a like a 617 pound square inch bite. I mean, these are badass, athletic, incredible animals. Not right? Yeah, they're definitely working dogs. Cairo's about 70 pounds and they're no joke. That's why I say don't 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 tell people to go buy a Malinois just because you read the book or watched a cool movie. They know what you're getting before you go purchase a, a Malinois. You might get you might have your hands full. Oh, uh, they're not an apartment dog. You need to keep them exercised and stimulated. If you come home afterwards and you find a new apartment, you wouldn't be too surprised. They're they're great working dogs. They're uh, real smart. They can get anywhere from, you know, 50 to 80 pounds, just like the shepherds, except shepherds be a little bit longer hair, a little bit, a little bit bigger, kind of the same category though. You know, we use Dutch shepherds, Belgian miles. It's really great dogs, real smart. So you talk in the book uh, about German shepherds and uh, Belgian Malinois and you uh, lead to the idea that a, a Belgian Malinois is probably even a better working dog than a German Shepherd, but there's certain criteria of why they are uh, a better working dog than a German Shepherd. Uh, and some of those reasons are because of the size and stuff. Is there other maybe temperaments and things like that? What makes the Malinois so, so much better than the Shepherd? So for us, it was the shorter hair and the weight, the you know, we got to hoist them around everywhere and faster with them. Uh, I would say that as far as being smart, I mean, the shepherds were, if not smarter, just as smart. It's just they're bigger. And um, you can see them being used better for law enforcement. You know, you have a bigger dog. They don't have to travel as far, maybe. But um, for us, having that smaller package, you know, not having to hoist a 120-pound shepherd up a wall instead of, you know, you just have a 60, 70-pound mouth. It made it a little bit more convenient, and they're just, their hair shorter so they can last in those hot environments. It's a little bit better. So we talk about uh, fast roping with your mouth, uh, skydiving, all those kind of things. We have a question that says, so they did everything with you, basically everything you did. Uh, let's talk a little bit about fast roping. Um, with Cairo uh, and and the um, technical difficulties that can come from that, especially when you use certain equipment, uh, some of the things that can go with that, and then skydiving and how 
the approach to skydiving is a little different than fast roping with Cairo. Yeah, so one of the fast rope missions that we had, I got um, couldn't get off of the device. <laughs> it turned turned out okay, but it ended up being pretty sketchy. Um, uh, one night we were coming in on the side of a mountain, and the helicopter was going up, and Kyra was pulling me down once we landed. And to get off the device, I had to unhook. And since he was pulling me down and up, I just couldn't get the carabiner off of my device. And I really thought the helicopter was going to take off with this on there and <laughs> ended, up, ended up being quite the fight where I had to throw him up and try to unhook. And eventually we, uh, we definitely we got off, but we, we definitely learned some lessons that night and we made some changes. I don't think I ever used the device again, but <laughs> that's made some changes where that won't happen anymore. But I still and so let's talk about the difference so let's talk about the difference between when you when you fast rope with Cairo and then when you use the device what, what makes it such a difference because people hear well device that's what you're supposed to do because it's actually a device for fast roping with a dog but it leads to I guess you would say longer wait times there's more technical to do on the ground when you fast rope with Cairo and we're talking strictly just straight fast rope. What happens as you come out of the bird? When I hook the device, the device cants in the rope and it makes it a little bit slower. Um, I would just kind of clip Cairo into my belt and make sure somebody had a, it was just instead of using the device, I would, I would go through my own safety procedures to where I knew I was safe going down the rope with Cairo. Either way, I would, I would usually have to trust one of my teammates to help me or clipping into the vise or getting myself securely on the rope. So it didn't change things up too much for me. I, I was pretty comfortable with Cairo too. He, I knew he wasn't too much of a spaz. So uh, I felt pretty safe fast roping with him. And yeah, just using the device, it, it's just another safety precaution. I don't know how to explain it any, uh, any more than RDM. And when I wasn't using the device, I just made sure I was safe. Take another extra wrap with my leg could you be a lot quicker and, and, and have a lot more agility without that device, I would assume? Exactly. It's a speed versus security. Kind of right. Thing. And that fine line between kind of doing both. But uh, obviously after so many different uh, missions and so many different training, you kind of found what works for you guys and you trusted your teammates to, to do what was best for the situation, which uh, you felt safe even though you weren't using the device. But it probably got you where you needed to be a lot faster. Yeah, they – let us have big boy rules and whatever it took to get the job accomplished. As long as everybody was safe and if I were to get hurt going in on the mission, I just look like an asshole. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's which is, which is kind of messed up. You're like, man, you were hurt. Like, oh, you're an asshole for getting hurt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're an asshole. You, you put everybody else in danger and you hurt. Right. Because you didn't want to use a device. So you, it's always on you to get your big boy rules. And and so the night you use that device, I don't think you ever used it again, right? After that night, you never used it again. But not for real, right? I was uh, for real. And and they had to come over. Now you you have an interesting nickname, uh, and and you went by Cheese, and I think you still go by Cheese. Is that correct? I don't go by Cheese anymore. No, no more. No more. No moss. So they, they check on you as you come down because you fought this thing for a while. And, and, and in the book, you talk about 
when you finally get unclipped, you just kind of hit the ground for a second, trying to gain your composure back, get the dog back and everything like that. Someone comes across and says, cheese, are you okay? And you were like, yeah, yeah, just give me a second. I'm, I'm ready to go on with the mission and even getting drug across that everything that's happening. Uh, everything's happening around you on the mission. It, it goes back to that laser focus of everything's happening, but I got to get right back on mission and, and do what I'm doing. Yeah. Give it a second to make sure you're good and get your stuff together, but that's just the beginning. So. Right. <laughs> Oh. And how far did you guys have to, it wasn't too far that you had to walk on that one. And that was why they kind of approached that because they didn't want to give you a long walk in. Correct. Yeah. I don't know. It all kind of, it could have been a good one. I can't even remember. They all kind of just merged together. So, uh, you get on the one second. Absolutely. One second. Let me check. So what he's probably checking on, uh, he has been in Houston with uh, two mouths uh, getting them fixed for the past couple of days. Oh, wow. I did so, see his interview with uh, Mike Huckabee where what was his, his other dog he just got or had now was, oh, gosh, I can't remember the name, but I, I watched the interview and he had another one on. Uh, I think that was here recently, too. Yeah, he, he's still got a couple dogs, um, a couple mouths, too, so. And I've seen the videos of these dogs, you know, um, um, my wife showed me videos and try to explain what these dogs were because, you know, they're using law enforcement and things like that. And um, they are amazing dogs. They, they jump up like where they jump on their trainer and they jump up and go. I mean, they're jumping like 12, 13, 14 foot in the air, uh, virtually running up trees. Um, these are some incredibly gifted dogs and and like you said you don't want to sound silly but they're like we're going to seal school for seals and he talks about in the book how passionately and uh and strongly he feels about that so definitely they're incredible animals sorry about that that's okay uh they're okay they're good okay i told him where you've been for the past couple of days so yeah so when we, we, we got my, my dog blue fixed, <laughs> he, we, we actually adopted him the day after he got fixed and he, he had a, he's a half German shepherd, half uh chow. Um, we just found out we got the DNA on him and uh, he would, he had to go back like three or four times to get staples. He wouldn't get licking himself. So um, he had to wear that cone on him. And um, he's also kind of a dumbass. So um <laughs> I get it, but um, my sympathies are with you, man. That's that's a that's a t tough process. You want to make sure they're all good when they go through that. Yeah, they're they're doing well. I haven't checked on them. In a minute. I thought I heard that they're good. They don't have their cones on. And we'll cones are on, then, huh? They're not yep. on. No, not on. Good. That's a good thing. Yeah, no, they're being good. Uh, they're hurting real bad. I didn't expect them as much. They can take some pain, but they're hurting. So let's go in a little more about Cairo because uh, it, let's talk about, I mean, we've talked about the book so far, uh, this whole thing, but this book uh, will is spectacular. Um, it is the story of not only what you did, but what the dog did and how, how much Cairo impacted the war on terrorism. And it, it sounds crazy to say that, you know, they always talk about a boy and his dog, like Jeff had mentioned earlier. That's what this story reminds me of. It's you and Cairo and everything that you have to do. 
and Cairo does some absolutely amazing things. And I want to talk right now about when Cairo was injured. Uh, and, and I would like to go as in depth as you can in this story, because in the book, it is absolutely heartbreaking. First off what happens to Cairo, but I, I want people to understand just what you and Cairo went through in order to get this mission accomplished. Yeah. I'd say the book is like a, it's like a Navy seal Marley and me. Yeah. 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 So there's a, the only thing that people really know about Cairo is the fact that he was on the Bin Laden mission. And there's, there's so much more to him than just that. And he was shot even before we went on that mission to, and he made a full recovery and he did a lot more, a lot more things than just that. Even at, towards the end of his life, it's pretty, pretty crazy. But, um, Yeah, that night we were, um, like I said, it was like going after kind of the same situation where Falco got shot. Two guys hidden in an ambush waiting for us to come in and they were going to engage us. Uh, the call was made to send Cairo in. Cairo ended up engaging one of the guys and as he was doing so, he, he got shot through his forearm and he got shot through his chest and his leg and they had to put a steel plate through his leg. Um, there was a low wall we had to send him over that night and it took him quite a, a while to get back over that wall. And I really, I thought he was dead. Like I said earlier, usually the dogs don't survive when they get shot. And the fact that he was taking so long to get back to me, I just, I knew he was probably dead. And then I finally saw him kind of limping, coming back to me slowly. And I, I saw him collapse before I get to him. And, you know, if you know of a Malinois or a Shepherd, they don't, they're not the kind of dogs that just collapse. So, yeah, I didn't really think he would pull through. The, the, the story is crazy. Like you said, it goes into way more detail. This is just the basic overview, but I mean, it's just the fact that I thought he was dead and he made it back to me and collapsed. It's really not a good sign. It took, took a lot of teamwork, a lot of the training that we had been through before it was like you know it was a pretty shitty circumstance but it was really cool to see that all that stuff all that training that we had put in before paid off and you know to die. i want to ask you and, we, sorry go ahead i apologize it's got him fixed not only recovered but back to 100 percent. well it, it goes a little more uh will and and i want to give the full, you know, the medic that came over and, and worked on Cairo that night. And when they flew you guys out of there and you went with Cairo and actual surgeons worked on Cairo instead of vets because there were no vets where you were. And then the flight that took you to Bagram and then how you slept on the floor of the hospital uh, next to him and, and all those things. I, I, that's what I want you to talk about because people don't understand how, uh, how important they, they think they know with dogs that they have in their house or dog, you know, maybe dogs, that they, but it's a completely different level with these military working dogs and especially a dog as special as Cairo and you, I mean, how much sleep did you get over the next couple days? Yeah, I didn't get much sleep. Like I said, it wasn't, it wasn't, it was a pretty terrible circumstance, but to see everybody come together, even my teammate 
knew he wasn't needed on the line. He came back and helped me save his life. I, the dogs had their own blowout kit specifically for them. I, as soon as he knew Cairo needed him, he came back. I handed him his stuff. I'm taking off Cairo's gear, and he's stuffing his fingers deep into his chest. Mm. Helicopter pilots risked their lives just for a dog. You know, they didn't have to come in and pick him up. They did. Surgeons, when we got back to base, worked on him just like a soldier. And we finally got him back to the veterinary staff in Bagram, and I slept with him right there on the floor the entire night. He had a little fat face the next morning because of all the air, but he was, yeah, I, he wasn't looking good. He wasn't looking good at all. But it's uh, it's pretty crazy how quick these dogs can recover and the pain that they can take. And I think that's incredible too. What DJ said in in what you know what you outlined in the book is. The, the medics, the surgeons, all the the staff, they treated them like uh, a person. And I think that's amazing because how important dogs have been in the military and, and, and you know, uh, from running, you know, being an ops guy like you and running missions and them being on your side and, learn, you know, them going in the action like you, it hadn't always been the way, you know, whether it's back in the Vietnam and in the way, you know, we treat animals. It is nice to see the military or at least in this situation, um, Given the dogs the respect um, and giving them the help they need to um, to recover and quite frankly serve more missions. So I think that's a really cool part of, of the story in the book for sure. And just so we can clarify, it was uh, it was two uh, two enemy personnel that uh, Cairo was going after, and it was the guy on the ground kind of lured him in and the guy was in a tree, correct? The, the, the second guy that actually shot at him. The one guy was hiding in a tree with an automatic weapon. And one guy was on the ground with a flashlight trying to get us to come in. Hmm. They have all kinds of different tricks they like to use. And, and to clarify, both of those guys are not with us anymore. Is that correct? Yeah. They, they got taken care of. Yeah, they uh, and and it was actually Cairo's actions that that opened up their position to where they were because without Cairo, it could have walked in without seeing that guy that that opened up both positions to our guys on the ground. Correct? Yeah, definitely. I would say he at least saved somebody from getting shot that night, if not killed. And so you come back, you go with him to Bagram. He is with the vets. Uh, and then uh, Cairo kind of leaves you for a while. Cairo has to go back to Germany, correct, uh, to get worked on and be with handlers and everything. Is Was it going back to Germany? I can't remember where he went uh, kind of for the uh, therapy part of it. Yeah, he went to Lackland for a while with my buddy. Well, Mike Toussaint took him back through Germany to Lackland Air Force Base, and he went through his recovery. And I ended up, I had to finish my deployment. So I ended up finishing the deployment and returned back from that deployment. He still wasn't back yet from rehab, and eventually he, he made it back home, and we had a, a good little reunion. Now, while he's getting rehabbed, you're still finishing up your deployment. You are given another dog, correct? I was. I was given Bronco. And Bronco was originally who you had looked at first to be your dog, correct? He was, yeah. Bronco was another great dog I was looking at in the beginning. And so 
What's it like, though, to know, and I'm, I'm kind of looking for mind state here, what's it to see this dog that you're so close to and what happens to him saving, you know, like you said, possibly someone from being shot or killed that night to going to another dog? I, I have to believe that there is, there's got to be something there where you're a good dog, but you're not Cairo. I mean, definitely, I didn't work as well with Bronco. I'd say that's all my fault. But um, the, the trainers really knew what they were doing when they put me and Cairo together. It's always shitty to lose your dog, too, right at the beginning of deployment. You stuck with a different dog. But uh, I was just happy Cairo was still alive. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. So as you get Bronco and you start into this, what are kind of your thoughts going into this next phase of your – because you said, like, it's at the beginning of your deployment, so you're going to be saddled with this dog for a while. Uh, what are your thoughts and what are you going through going into this? Like, how are you looking at, well, I just need to do this or I need to do this? How do you approach working this new dog in, into your life and into missions? Yeah, just keep them uh, putting in the work to keep them up to date and see how we're going to work together. We end up finishing up the deployment fine. We might not have worked as well as me and Cairo worked together, but there'd be no other choice. So all I did was come in with the mindset of working Bronco to the best of my ability. So so let me let me backtrack for a second. This is something I should have brought up earlier, but um, when you got the call to go. Uh, to get Bin Laden, um, uh, were you shocked? It was you and Cairo, or or is it a testament to Cairo how good he was, how good you guys were? Can, can you speak a little bit of that? And and were you shocked you got the call? Did you know much about it when you got the call? Can you speak of that? Um, so I wasn't say we were too shocked. It was surprising, but we were just there working hard every day. And we weren't really focusing on that. We had stuff happen all the time that we were always getting ready for something. So I was a pretty young kid, always getting ready for something. I don't know. It was cool, but I wouldn't say we were too shocked. It was, um, yeah, I don't know. It's hard to put into words, but we were always, um, it didn't matter what it was. We were always preparing for something. I was just training, hanging out with the same guys. Um, we were very fortunate. Well, when we talk about getting the call uh, <laughs> about necessarily Bin Laden, but once again, see, this is what I love about you, Will. You you understate everything because there there's a lot to these stories. There, there I mean, and and especially this one. You get the call. Uh, you're back from your deployment. You go to is uh, it Jump Master School or Halo School? Was it Jump Master School? So you go to jump master school with your buddy. You're there for what a day, two days. Yeah. Just two days. I think maybe three. You, you get a call that says, Hey, you need to come back. And Oh, by the way, when you get here, go by and pick up Cairo. Yeah. I just got in a free fall jump master school with one of my best friends. <laughs> Was this Nick? Oh, Nick. Yeah. And, 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 and supposedly he told everybody you quit. Yeah, he did. <laughs> He uh, was there at that school and got a phone call from my boss. Um, he said I didn't really care what was going on. Just got a plane ticket for you. So hopped on the plane, 
I tried to check out. It was having it was having a couple of issues checking out of the school, so I ended up just taking off eventually. And my buddy Nick told everybody I quit the next day, so that was pretty nice. Of me. <laughs> That's messed up. Yeah. And y'all were the only two guys like involved, right? So yeah. I was like, oh, yeah. So because you you pretty much ended up just telling him, call my boss; he'll explain everything. You left. Nick goes to class the next day. They're looking around. They they ask where you're at. Nick goes, hey, he quit. <laughs> and they said, why? And he said, I don't know. He just quit. He was, a pretty, he was more quiet than I was probably. So probably I, I find that very hard to believe. Yeah, right. <laughs> so he, uh, he tells him he quit. I don't know why he quit, but he quit. So... How does he tell you that he does that? Did, did, how did that ever come up back in conversation with you guys? Like, oh, yeah, he, just over a beer one night. I'm sure he's just like, Hey, I told everybody to quit that day. Oh, yeah, of course you did. Perfect. Yeah, yeah, thanks for that. Oh, by the way, I threw you under the bus and made everyone think you're an idiot, but love you anyway, man. About not being able to check out something, I don't know. So, We've talked about Cairo being injured. Let, let's talk about your injury. Um, let's talk about the mission that went through it, uh, that, that, that actually made it happen. And then uh, I want to get more in depth because here, here's the thing that I want to bring up about this. Um, as you well know, there, there are a lot of people that are either injured in training in the military, they're injured overseas, what they do for this country. And when they get back here, uh, one, there's a, there's a couple different things. One, it, it's hard for them, some of them to transition from what they were doing. Some of them, it's hard to even get the help that they need while they're in, let alone when they get out. But I want to first start with, as we talked about Kyra's injury, let's talk about one, the mission, what happened to you, and then how things kind of came apart from there for a while in your life. After uh, the grenade injury? Yes. Yeah, that night uh, we were going after a house full, just another target, going after a house full of bad guys. They ended up hearing us outside and... Um, I was waiting for one of my friends to go set up on another roof. And uh, I guess once they heard us, they started uh, sticking their head out the window. So we knew that they were there. Or they knew that we knew that they knew that we were there. Um, one of my teammates ended up started. He started to engage up the second floor. As soon as I saw that, I moved my way out to the, uh, this open field along with a, a few of my other teammates. And... About that time, they started throwing grenades out the window, and one of them ended up exploding behind me and got me good enough to – it rocked me pretty well. Um, didn't knock me unconscious, but it was – I had some shrapnel go through my hand and all up and down my legs and back, and arm, face. Uh, took two forced gump wounds. That's what I like to tell everybody. Those were my two. Forest gump. <laughs> the biggest injury. I'm sorry. I like the way you put that. Two forced gump wounds, but ended up getting hit with a couple of teammates of mine. Uh, everybody ended up surviving. Everybody was okay. I just 
Um, after that, I just didn't feel the same. I started getting migraines, really bad memory loss. It just didn't feel the same. So it's all pretty much downhill after that explosion. But I think it was a accumulation of that grenade blast plus a bunch of the other blasts over the over the over the years through either breaches or you know those rockets, anything else. Um, I think that was just the tipping point, and it just started to go downhill pretty bad after that. The migraines and the memory loss were really bad. Uh, like I said, everybody ended up surviving that night. Could have definitely been way worse. But it, uh, it was pretty much the end of my career. I stuck around for a few years after that, going through a bunch of different medical screenings and processes, but just couldn't quite figure out how to uh, get me back to feeling like normal. So 2015, I was medically retired from the Navy. And you did, uh, what is it, 13 years total, Silver Star, Purple Heart. Yeah, some 13 years total. Pretty awesome accomplishments, and thank you for your service. But, um, uh, and then, you know, I don't know where you want to go with this, but it's very sombering. But, uh, um, uh, when you get done with that and your career ends, that must be a very difficult transition from combat. And quite honestly, let's just put it, Navy SEALs are badass. You go on badass missions. You, you're protecting everyone in this country. You're protecting everything that we stand for, that most people stand for at least. And um, it must be a tough transition. So hopefully, um, um, obviously, you have your, all your shit together and you're doing great now and um, it's good to see. But um Hopefully you got the, the treatment and the care you need and, and, and um, whatever else that's uh, necessary. And um, um, it's hard for someone like me that's never served and never done any time, like, you know, done anything important like that to, uh, to, to hear those stories um, and how to uh, place that um, within myself. So I guess I don't have anything very powerful to say, but thank you for what you did. And um I can imagine that was a very difficult time and that transition was hard. So um, I'm glad your story's out and I'm glad that there's a lot of people like you and you and your, you know, Cairo story has gotten out. It's a pretty amazing story. And anyone that hasn't gotten the book or read it needs to go ahead and do that. Actually, we had a couple of comments of, of people on here that ordered your book tonight while we were on the show. So enjoy. Yeah. So, well, let's let, let's go back to the injury. So, you you one you. What are you ultimately diagnosed with? Uh, TBI, traumatic brain injury. Okay, and for the people that are watching, I, I want you because you you do so well in the book of explaining just what it does to your body. So. You're, you're ultimately diagnosed with TBI. Uh, what happens to you physically and mentally as you're going through this? I had my hair fall out a few times. It's called alopecia. Just huge, huge clumps of my hair fell out. My fingernails had fallen out. Um, I just knew something was off. I just wasn't feeling like my normal self. But um, if it wasn't for the physical symptoms, it would have been hard for me to 
kind of believe it, I guess. Am I making this up? Or am I not making this up? Do I really not feel the same as I used to? And so it's kind of weird when it's your own brain that's messing up on you. It can be a real weird spot for you to figure it out when it's your own brain that's not working. So it's kind of a kind of a predicament. Um, I had some good people that drove me to a few brain treatment clinics and helped me get on the right path. I'm still working through a few things. You know, my brain might not work as well as it used to, but uh, there's definitely some good programs out there and some good modalities to use to get your brain working properly again. And so, you know, with this, when when, when you have this, and you you said that it ultimately. Um, Ultimately, your career was over, but you, you noticed the physical things by your hair falling out, uh, all the other physical things. Now, mentally, though, as, as everyone can see, and I'll point out again, you are a very laid back guy. You are a very calm and collected guy. And I can only think that that's been your whole life like that. Uh, your your moods changed, though, once this happened uh, and, and you were um, – kind of quick to uh, quick to get angry and things like that all from this injury. So I, I want to speak a little bit about that. And the reason I want to speak a little bit about that is because I, th I think that that happens more often than we know uh, more often when we're talking about military personnel, law enforcement personnel, any kind of first responders, not only uh, TBIs, but tie into that post-traumatic stress and all those different things. Um, what are signs that people should look for, uh, that they know that they're going through this and that they need help with these things? Okay, the, uh, the anger was definitely up there for sure. I would say just be looking out for that. Lots of excessive boozing on my part, but you can, you can medicate with anything, you know, sugar, pills, any of that stuff. I just say, just be, um, Careful, like you said, it doesn't have to be a TBI. You don't have to be taking hits to the head. You can be a first responder and see some pretty horrific things, and that definitely takes a toll. She's, I mean, police officers all the time, car wrecks, and you're putting it out there every day. And then you know, just yeah, some things that you might be able to see. Just be, uh, be cognizant that some of that stuff might add up over over time. And if you're taking hits to the head, Definitely, yeah, definitely pay attention. I didn't think all those breaches over the years would take a toll, and I think they did, though. I know they did. And and so ultimately, um, when we talk about all this, you 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 get back on track, but you're you're going through your your job essentially changes. You're you're still a seal. You're still doing things, but your job has essentially changed. Um, and at this time, when we're this far in, you, you're not really a dog guy anymore because they don't they don't keep you guys as dog guys permanently. You you do your job and then you move on and you do other things. So as all this is going on, something that you love so much as working with Cairo and stuff. Uh, was kind of going to the wayside um, and you weren't seeing Cairo as much. He wasn't staying with you as much, but, but you mentioned in the book that Cairo was kind of what got you through this. So if we can talk a little bit about that being part of your therapy or 
being able to let people know, find an outlet to go to, find something that will will figure it out. So first, let's talk about the job that you were doing, uh, that, that all this is going through as you're trying to get through all your medical, through going to see a doctor every day. What are you doing uh, in the Navy now? I just had a side job. They were mostly letting me go to my medical appointments. Some some really good leadership that was in charge of me that knew uh, I needed to take care of me. So I just had a, I was an instructor for a little bit. And then once I couldn't do that job anymore, I just got kind of a basic staff job where I could just go to my medical appointments at any time. So, uh, you're, you're not working with Cairo, but you're still going to see Cairo at this time. And, and you mentioned in the book that that's really kind of what helped you, you get through a lot of this by going to see the doctors and, and everything, um, that you're doing. It was Cairo that was kind of helping you through this. Yeah, I think dogs can be one of those modalities that can help you get through some bad times. That's why there's service dogs out there and all that stuff. Uh, I wouldn't call Cairo a service dog, but the end of his life wasn't the best. So it was good for me to be able to take care of him when he needed me. Well, I can imagine y'all had been through so much and he was wounded and, and you had your 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 experience with 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 TBI and wounded. And um, y'all loved you. Y'all been through a lot together. So um, getting back together, if you will, um, and you adopted him when his service career was done, uh, must have been something that was extremely uplifting and, and uh, extremely positive for your life at that point. It really was, yeah. It was great to have him home. It didn't last too long, but we had, we had some good times. So I guess what he had a year until he was – he. so I guess Cairo passed on um, – I wrote it down here um, back on April 2nd, 2015 at 3.20 p.m., huh? Yeah. And so – It didn't last too long, but we had fun. Well, I will tell you, um, the last couple chapters and the last five pages of your, of your book are absolutely – uh, heartbreaking with everything that goes on. But before we get into that, cause that's kind of the final thing that I want to wrap up with. Let's do, let's talk about one more mission that you and Cairo went on before any of the, the things happened, because what I wanted to do was get both of your injuries out of the way, talk about those kind of things and how you worked with each other. But let's talk about the biggest mission that you guys did together. And it's probably one of the biggest missions ever in the history of the military uh, operation Neptune spear. Uh, so we can explain when you get that call for Operation Neptune Spear. Let's just go right into what that is. Yeah, that was the um, mission to go get Osama bin Laden. We got the call. Eventually, we weren't told in the beginning, and then we were told. Um, nothing really changed. Just who we were going after was a little bit different. <laughs> you know, he's trained the same, and every, it was always dangerous to go out. Um, just make sure your life insurance policies were up to date. Oh, shit. That's it. So uh, I hear there's a lot of, well, I've, I say I hear, I've listened to a lot of different SEALs um, say, man, I that's that's a mission you want to be on, um, something profound. It's so important, um, epic. So it 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 must have been truly special to, to have the privilege and honor and then obviously take down one of the, 
the worst people that uh, in our modern history. Yeah, we were very fortunate to be chosen for that mission. It's not something you really focused on. There was plenty of other missions to focus on, very important missions, but obviously we, we weren't going to turn that one down. It was a very right. And the only reason I got chosen, I say, is because of Cairo. And it would have chosen somebody different if it wasn't for him, so I got super lucky. Well, I, I think you uh, once again understate yourself a little bit. Uh, so, so you get the call, we go through the training. Now in the trainings, you're doing, uh, mock-ups, uh, full-size mock-ups. You're doing everything to get ready for this mission. Uh, you guys get through all the training, you get ready, you go over there, you load up, Cairo's on your lap for the entire flight. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Th that can't be that comfortable in a, in a packed helicopter with a 75 pound dog on your lap. I don't like when my dog is on my lap and he weighs nine pounds. So, uh, Frank, yeah, <laughs> it was worth it. But so, yeah, it was right there. First off, what music are you listening to? A lot of guys read, a lot of guys sleep. You listen to music a lot. Uh, what, what song? It's any rock in the country, but, uh, ACDC came on that night towards the end. Yeah. Nice. So you're, you're flying in, uh, you get there, mission's on, uh, you get on the ground. What is you and Cairo's objective uh, as you hit the ground? Cairo was trained to detect explosive odor and man odor. My job was just to put Cairo in the best position to utilize his nose. And I'm just there to babysit the dog. Once we landed on the ground, we did a couple of sweeps of the perimeter, looking for any explosives, tunnels, booby traps. Once we felt that the perimeter was secure, we moved into the first floor, started doing sweeps to the first floor and second floor, looking for the same, any IEDs, any booby traps, anywhere somebody might be hiding. Um, eventually the call was made, the mission was accomplished. So, you know, we uh, had a few things few things it covers in the book about, you know, goes into more detail about that, but the job wasn't over just because we accomplished the mission. We still had to, we still had to get home. <laughs> so. Well, and, and, and let's talk about that a little bit. Getting home was a, a little more uh, of a job than what was originally thought was going to happen there. Because as we all know, one of the aircraft that you brought in was actually crashed and uh, kind of taken care of while it was there. And uh, you, you talk about in the book that, that all the mock-ups that you went through, they were a little different. They weren't quite ready for everything that was going to happen. There was a, the, the way the walls were built and stuff. Um, so you stick around after everything's done. You take a, a tr treasure trove of information, intelligence, all that kind of stuff. You're waiting on the next bird to come in and get you. But the entire uh, thing is rigged to, to blow. And as your helicopter's coming in, that's the countdown timer, correct? Yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty cool to see. Nobody didn't freak out. They just called <laughs> off on a racetrack and helicopter exploded. The other one came through its fireball. But it was a... Uh, it's a pretty epic night. We said that we weren't done there. We had to we still had to get home. And uh, the time that I can really remember 
maybe taking a step back and realizing that everything was going to be okay is when we landed back at the hangar. And looking around and seeing that everybody was okay, the, the mission was accomplished. You know, and I got to do everything with my dog. That's pretty cool. So, so can I ask you? I mean, I mean, you 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 capture this awful terrorist. Oh, I, I know. I I never served in the military. I played football in college. I know it's like after winning the football game. What was it like completing that mission and celebrating with your brothers? Yeah, it's. It's a moment I'll never forget. That's for sure. It's a, it's a, I can't even put it into words. Just you know, I was fortunate enough just to be, just to be a seal, um, let alone get to do all that stuff. With some of the best guys I'll ever know. It was a, it's a moment that I'll never forget to say the least. I guess I don't I don't have words to describe it. It's pretty cool. I I don't want you to spoil it because I want people to read the book. But you did something special that night that you had never done on any other mission. So I want people that read the book to keep an eye out for what Will did. And, and I got to tell you, it was pretty awesome what you did. Uh, don't sell yourself short on that one. Uh, but he did something that he had never done on any other mission. And you got to read the book to find out what it is. But when you read it, this guy's going to go up another notch of cool in your book. Don't, don't you think? It was a good one. Yeah. And, it was pretty surreal watching the uh, the president address the address the country with his body right there, right beside us with it being done. It was, uh, it was really cool. So, did you actually ever get to see his body, or were you on a hell a bird back somewhere by the time that all happened? Oh no, I definitely got to see it. Well, and that, and, and that's great. Uh, that's a great part of the story about when you guys are in. You know. Uh, you were, of course, talking to your buddy and, and he said, uh, you don't need to go up there. They're busy right now where, you know, when you get the, the mission has been done uh, and you just take Cairo and go back to working and, and um, trying to find whether there was someone maybe hiding or whether there was another wired explosive or anything like that. You just turn back. I mean, let's say that's the biggest turnaround or that's the biggest thing to happen in the war on terrorism ever and you're part of it and you just take the dog and go right back to work and and doing what you're doing now when you get him back and you see him at the base um you go into depth in the book about that and people need to read everything that happened with that because there's a lot of things that you talk about that people don't know um how confirmation happened uh how you guys made sure that it was the right target all that kind of stuff um do you remember, and this is going to sound like a crazy question. You, I know you guys went back, you were in a, in a area and you were watching the news. Um, do you remember what you ate that night? I think they made some pizzas for us. <laughs> nice. Pre, like, is this after you got back or pre-mission? After the mission. Some pizzas. Hell yeah, they but should, should have been really good too. <laughs> it was really good. Yeah. It was cool to see America come back together again too, celebrating on the news. When we landed back in the United States, it was cool to see everybody there to support us too, that, that couldn't be there. Yeah. Yeah. That was amazing. It was. Uh, it's a, it's a great story to, to really hear the inside of someone that was there. So we get done. Um, we, we get done with this mission. You move through all the medical stuff. You, you uh, essentially 
medically retire from the military. Um, and then, um, it was kind of a touch and go situation, whether Cairo one was going to retire or when he was going to retire. And then number two on that, where Cairo was going to go after he did retire. So can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it took a little bit to get him retired. Um, these are working dogs. They have to put in the paperwork and the due process to see where they're going to go and what the home's going to go and the temperament of the dog. These are working dogs. You can't just give them away to anybody. So, And then nothing in the military is ever fast. <laughs> so put in the paperwork, and then there were some people that said that he wouldn't be leaving because of who he was. And eventually that went away, and he ended up getting uh, to go home. And there's a few people that wanted him. I was still working as a SEAL, I probably wouldn't have been able to take him home. They probably wouldn't have given him to me. But since I was going through all of my medical appointments and that whole process, I was able to take him home and care for him. Once they, uh, once the head shed saw that, they gave me a call and told me I could take him home. It just took a while. <laughs> and I, I, I think that was good, good for you and good for him to be at the end. What's amazing to me, though, is when you say that, you know, a couple people wanted him. I would think that people would go, look, th this dog has been through everything with this guy. Why don't we let this guy have him? Uh, it, it seems weird to me that, that uh, I mean, it doesn't seem weird that other people would want this dog, but it seems weird that they would uh, actually go forth and try and get him. So you get him, you take care of him. Uh, you, you go on a trip to, um, to New York City um, to see the 9-11 Memorial. You take Cairo with you. You take your other dog with you. Um, but it didn't quite turn out in New York the way you wanted it to. Um, Cairo was starting to get sick. And I don't want to give too much away because this is the real. This is the wrenching. Yeah, this is the gr the really great part of the book that draws you in. Uh, but it, it suffice to say, Cairo was starting to get sick. He wasn't able to go see the the memorial with you and things like that. So there were some things at the end of his life that didn't necessarily work out in your or his favor. Uh, you bring him back uh, and he continues to get more and more sick. But we're talking about a dog that's what, 10, 11 years? I think he's 11 years old at this point, correct? He's 10. 10? 10, uh, 10 years old at this point. Uh, he's been shot twice. He's been through all these things. Uh, and this is the point of the story where you start giving back to Cairo. Not that you weren't giving back to him the whole time, but this is where you start really taking care of him and helping him get through what he's getting through. And as we talked about, whether it be traumatic brain injury or post-traumatic stress, uh, he's feeling all those things too, and you're working him through it. And I, I, I this was the best part of the book. Yeah, it was a rough go towards the end. Cancer is a terrible thing. Just glad I was able to take care of him as much as I could. And having him around definitely helped me out. And of course, just being there for him at such a shitty time. I just knew he was in good hands. And my other buddies put in the paperwork because if I wasn't able to take care of him, they would have. Right. And they would have taken care of him as well. But I'm glad I got to because it was obviously pretty important to me. So luckily God put me in a position where I was able to get him home. We could take care of each other. Yeah, um, and it's absolutely the 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 
level and commitment that you went through to make sure that Cairo was was happy, was content, was taken care of is just unbelievable. Um, I don't think a lot of people in this world in general know that kind of love. Um, and, and I know it sounds crazy to say between, you know, you and the dog and everything, but th there was a very deep, special kind of love there. And it was absolutely amazing to hear the things that you would do just to make him comfortable, to make him happy. Um, and, and up until the end, he, he still was a good dog. He did a couple things like eat your tuna fish sandwich one day, but good. not, but, but not only ate your tuna fish sandwich, the dog actually figured out how to unwrap the tuna fish sandwich out of it, eat everything in the middle and leave the, <laughs> as you say, the best part for you. Yeah. He's still, he's still a good dog. He's smarter than me. Yeah. So, um, you know, you, you get to the end of this and, and once again, I don't want to give away the end of the book of, of everything that happens, what, what goes through suffice to say, uh, this was one of the best stories about a dog that, that you can hear. I mean, there's been movies made forever where the red fern grows, Lassie, all, they don't hold a candle to Cairo right? Um, and, and the things that Cairo has done. Now, what I want to talk about now is let's talk about the two different books and what people should look at for both of those books. First, let's talk about No Ordinary Dog. Let's talk about the ages that should read that, what they should be in, in, in the mood for while they're reading that book, and then we'll move on to Warrior Dog. Yeah, No Ordinary Dog is not too bad. It still has some cuss words in it and a little bit of violence. But your Warrior Dog is going to be for just your younger readers, young adult readers, if you will. No cuss words, no gory parts, but um, still the same stories, just uh, not, not as violent. But No Ordinary Dog isn't that, it's not like your normal seal book. It's more like a Marley and Me, like a Navy seal Marley and Me, like I said. Uh, okay. It has a little bit of violence and a little bit of cuss words because we are sailors, but Warrior Dog takes all that out. And can, so, can I, can I, yeah, I'm go, sorry, Dustin. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Jeff. I'm ask you, um, writing this book, um, what did it do for you personally? Did, did it, did it allow you to have some, some peace or, or, or some, um, some internal, um, processing to everything you went through with not just the dog, but your career did uh, other than have an amazing story. That's, that's going to be a bestseller and, and all these wonderful things. What did it do for you personally to be able to tell your story and tell your dog's story most of all? That's it. Just getting Cairo's story out there. It was a pretty big piece of history. It's a really big piece of history. And uh, Cairo was the only dog that was part of that mission. So the only thing that people know about Cairo was that's it. Uh, There's so much more to him than that. And uh, we got a great story out there. Working with Joe Layden was really great. Everybody seems to be loving it. Um, that's what was most important to me was getting out a good story. And we did that. I only got, only had one shot of writing the Cairo story. So we didn't mess it up too bad. I think it no, out. no, it's got great reviews by the way too. And, um, that's what's most important to me is just yeah. reading reviews and everybody seems to be enjoying it. And that's what matters. It's great. I hope, I hope kids can learn from more of your dog. Uh, I get to bring attention to what these dogs do for us because I mean, people love their dogs, but they don't 
I didn't know what dogs could do for us, even in, you know, in the military and law enforcement too, service dogs. And people know hunting dogs, right? But they don't really know. Yeah. That's the thing. Like people with hunting dogs or dogs that competition dogs, a dog that fetches and sits for you and minds you, those commands hold not a candle in the wind compared to what the commands and, and discipline of what your dog had. So all those awesome hunting dogs and, and do amazing things. Um, that's a drop in the bucket compared to what Cairo and many of those war dogs do. And um, that's saying a lot because the pride that, that those other people take in it, I can imagine the pride due to the importance in the high level of training that these dogs have the amount of pride you have for them. And of course the love and adoration that comes from that and being by your side and going on ops missions and being an operator with the dog by your side is it, that's, that's pretty phenomenal. And I would suspect that um, um, that's much different than not having a dog by your side to say the least. So um, it's a pretty incredible story to be really honest. So, Will, in talking about dogs, you know, you your whole life have had uh, working dogs. You had a dog that actually, uh, when you were a kid, um, that dug up a tree, an entire tree. It was a husky. No job for him. So. I've got a husky mix. Yeah, they got a lot of energy, man. Those things are no joke. He pulled a whole tree out of the ground. It wasn't like the tallest tree ever, but it was a, it was a big tree. It was what, like a 10-foot tall tree, wasn't it? Well, it was big enough for me to be impressed and still remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've got a Akita Husky mix, and that girl, she gets after it. Yeah. But, so say nowadays, like if you buy a, a Doberman, a Husky, a, any kind of working dog, a hunting dog, just let him, you better give him a job. <laughs> or at least run him, stimulate his brain. Yeah, let's uh, let's talk about that for a minute. Um, you you mentioned in your book, people see movies, they see TV shows, and they go, "Wow, um, that's a pretty cool dog. I should get that dog, or I should get that kind of dog." And then they get that dog and have no idea what they're in for. So they get uh, a, a mal and they bring it home, and it, as you say, rearranges the furniture for them by destroying it because they don't get out and they don't work. They don't do these things. Can you speak a little bit to people that I, I get their hearts in the right place that they want to get a dog and take care of it, but they really don't know the level of commitment that it takes for these kind of dogs. Yeah, just do a little bit of research. And if you do go get one, well, you'll probably just find out the hard way, but it's not really fair to the dog. It's not fair to you or the dog. It's going to be just a pain in the ass. Probably just do a little bit of research on what kind of dog you're getting and how to stimulate the dog physically and you just got to give them a job you, uh, you know you buy a lab probably take them hunting if you buy a husky give them you have to exercise them and just you know, train yourself to you can't lie on the dog to get a dog yeah. perfect right you got to put in the training for yourself do a little bit of research yourself know what kind of dog you're getting and you know if you have a small apartment maybe you don't need a 70 pound full energy <laughs> probably going to be a bad idea but maybe if you know that you're that dog's going to go running with you every morning and every night and you're going to keep him stimulated and working all day then yeah maybe it is 
know your know what you're getting into. So you have some uh, pictures of dogs behind you. Um, who are the dogs in this picture? That is my boy Axel, who's not here right now, and my female that we just lost about a year ago, Hayden. And she was actually with Cairo a lot. She was, yeah. When she was young. Uh, Cairo used to, as you say, put up with her. Yeah, she, uh, was, <laughs> she was a pain. <laughs> Always wanted to play with him, and, and he would give her some, some play time, but he didn't spend, uh, you know, he wasn't going to spend as much time as she wanted. No. No, he was retired by then. So um, a couple other places that we can find out about Cairo, uh, his uh, vest is now his, uh, I guess, harness that he wore uh, is now on display at the 9-11 Museum in New York City. It is. Yeah, they put it up for display. It's a real nice. That's exhibit. incredible. The Bin Laden exhibit, it looks, the whole display looks really great. The whole exhibit is real nice. They did a great job. Uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's amazing. And I think that not only this book, but, but having, you know, with as many people that go through the nine 11, uh, museums and stuff, I mean, the lines are forever long every day, um, to be able to see Cairo's stuff, um, is, is great that they can see what they did. Now, are there any other, other than Cairo, are there any other of the working dogs that you knew with anything in the museum? No, just Cairo stuff right now. That's that's pretty amazing. It really is. It was an honor to be able to have everybody come through and look at his stuff. It would be there. And you still have Cairo's ashes, right? You carry carry uh, the ashes around with you, right? Sometimes I carry them around with them with me, yeah. But I, I still have them. That's pretty cool. So something that I wanted to clear up as as I read the book. Um, Cairo wore the same harness his entire working career, correct? He pretty much wore the same harness. He had a couple of different ones that we could switch through, but I had his go-to harness. And th and that's the actual one that's in the museum, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so between these uh, two books, I, I really think it, it started out with No Ordinary Dog. Um, when was Warrior Dog brought up? Uh, was it, did you get the idea in the beginning or was it at the end after no ordinary dog was already done? It's pretty much, I think once we started wrapping up with no ordinary dog, we saw that kids might get a, something out of a warrior dog. When I was at the nine 11 museum, donating his vest, one of the guys there kind of, he opened my eyes to a few things. One that, you know, kids these days don't even know what nine 11 was because it was so long ago. And for the kids to be able to relate for certain items that they relate to better, like boots and helmets and dog stuff. So for them to see Cairo's bridge the gap, I guess, a little bit easier. Um, things they can relate to. And I'm hoping that if kids want to No Ordinary Dog is a great book for anybody who has dogs, period, um, animals, anybody working in the military or dog handler, be a SEAL. Hopefully, Warrior Dog can educate kids on what dogs do in the military or what their mom or dad does in the military, if they're a dog handler or SEAL. Or, I don't know. So if they get something out of it, and I think they will. And, and that's something that I love about your book is that even though you were a SEAL and you were the elite of the elite, um, you 
what I like is that you say that that no job is more important than the other one. Everyone has a job in the military, and and you state that a couple times in the book that that just serving your country is you know uh, very important. And I I think that in today's times we've lost a lot of that mentality that that you know that just serving and doing something for your country is is the one of the greatest sacrifices that you can give definitely you can't do it all alone right chuck norris showing up <laughs> <laughs> chuck chuck norris. I, listen you you guys make fun but chuck norris uh, invasion the USA is one of the Invasion USA is one of the best movies ever made. Right, that's how it works, just like that. Whatever force, whatever force fifteen he did. That's it. Nobody else. You don't need a Delta Force. All the Delta Forces. Uh, but by the way, Chuck Norris is the only human being to kick coronavirus's ass. Just saying. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so you know um, the. The whole thing with with this is, I think at this time that that this book is is very important, especially at the crossroads that we're at uh, with the world right now. Um, I, I think that it has a very important message, not only for service to your country, but but service to your family. Uh, you you talk about your parents. I wouldn't say a ton in the book, but you definitely mention them as how good of parents they were, um, what you did before missions, what you didn't do before missions with your parents. And I, I think it's very important that that even though your mom wasn't huge on the idea of you being a Navy SEAL, you really had that family that kind of bonded behind you and let you do what you needed to do or what you felt you needed to do in life. Yeah, they did. I was very lucky to have some parents and grandparents that supported me. Had to get LASIK surgery, so they paid for that. And I was the only child, so they didn't really want me to go off and be sealed, but I think they really weren't going to stop me. And how, how big a how big a little town is Lumberton? Oh, I'm not even sure. It's I think it's gotten much bigger these days, but I don't, I don't spend too much time there. Right. Uh, so I, I know that you were just recently with your with your dad. Um, how often do you spend time with your family? Just depends. This whole Corona stuff has made things a little weird, but as much time as possible, it all just depends what's going on. So, Will, how do you, uh, you know, and kind of getting to the end of this, how do you spend your days now? I just try to wake up and be productive. Wake up and Try to get a good workout in. Try to focus on some, some brain health stuff in the morning, whether it's breathing or meditating. Getting a good workout in and seeing where it goes from there. So the brain health stuff, that's that's going to be a, a long-term, that, that's going to be something you're going to have to work on probably the rest of your life. Is that not correct? I would say so, yeah. Yeah. And um, um, no, I think that's important because – um, just like buds or SEAL school or whatever, you've through your career, you've been like, eh, I'll do whatever. I'll t do whatever it takes. And you're such a laid back guy. You're not, um, you probably have a lot of inter internal intensity, but um, I really do appreciate your approach that 
you're laid back. Um, you've been a badass. You don't act like you're a badass. Um, you've accomplished a lot. You are very humble, and um, you're attacking this uh, traumatic, traumatic brain injury in a way like, hey, I'm going to get up and be productive every day. And I think that's just what people are losing these days is, hey, let's just get up and go to work. Let's just be better. Let's be productive. And like Dustin's saying, um, your story is so valuable to – like I have a 16-year-old that's about to be 17, um, and, and I'm going to make him read this book um, because the value behind of it – and he's a dog lover too, so he'll be interested. But, you know, if he's not listening to his rap or playing his video games or whatever – but um, I think that's so important for you, the younger generation these days. And, and I'm not trying to get sidetracked here, but um, Dustin has some some young um, some young girls. I have a, a a teen that's probably doesn't even know what he wants the hell to do in his life. College isn't in the mix, so um, I think your story is important. I think that I can use it to, to his benefit. So um, whatever book reports he has this year, he'll be doing it on your book. Nice, yeah, that's good stuff. Hey, you never know. You know. I wanted to write a book about my dog, so that that's already accomplished. And if I can help, you know, anybody, not just veterans, with no ordinary dog, by telling some of my personal stuff or help dog programs out there, there's some of my teammates that are, you know, giving back to the dogs. So I get to give back to them. Help help anybody that's having some brain issues or just having a tough time, or even you know, helping kids. That's you know, it's a win-win-win. So just a, just a couple more questions, Will. Uh, let's talk about the meditation. I I, I got to ask you honestly, how do you do it? Because I can't seem to I can't seem to get it. I've tried, but I can't seem to I still don't have it down to either. get into that state. Just got to work on different aspects. So I, I incorporate some some different breathing techniques into my meditation. Do you do yoga at all, Will? Yeah, I definitely do some stretching. Yeah. Yoga stuff, it helped me. Um, I've had back fusions and uh, from playing football. I just had knee surgery and some other stuff. And I find that um, when I was doing some of that, when they let you go to yoga classes before this corona, it helped me a lot. And I think the breathing and stuff probably helped me more than anything to kind of relax my body, control my core. Um blood flow in the, in the right places. But um, meditation wise, Dustin, I've always struggled with that. Just meditating itself. I, I mean, I have a hard time being quiet and still. So um, may, maybe Will has all the secrets. I don't know. Nobody has them. I think it's just got to keep at it. And it's, I think that's the whole point of it. It's not easy. So it's got to keep doing it. That's why Whatever got- you're doing, you're doing it right. Cause you're laid back as hell. And I appreciate it. Yeah. Not always, but that's why <laughs> <laughs> so uh what's your favorite movie will what kind of movies are you into Hills. <laughs> that's a tough question it's a tough question i don't know, have to be some co- sort of comedy uh, we watched the other guys that's one of my top ones we were just talking about that today one of my top ones i don't know it's hard to say what my favorite is though man it's a tough question do you watch any action movies at all or is that yeah course now i i always ask of we you're the second seal we've had on here but i but i have to ask a question navy seals the movie did you see it before <laughs> you were a navy seal yeah i'm sure i did yeah. did it make you want to become a seal i read a bunch of books was charlie sheet in that yes 
Oh, well, then, well, that explains it all. I still watch it, and I still want to become a SEAL, although I know that'll never happen. So, so accurate. you got to pass the physical, Dustin. Yeah, we've got a we've got a military pilot that watches a show he's on here right now. Uh, his and he put it in the comments. I knew he would. Uh, Pitch Perfect is his favorite movie. Pitch Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> is that Scout? No, this is uh this is a guy that uh, that I still work with from time to time, and uh, his is Pitch Perfect along with a couple. Um, <laughs> he says it's like Firebirds for pilots. <laughs> and tell tell uh will you have a lot of people coming in saying some wonderful things about you thank you for your service your story is amazing so yeah pitch perfect i don't know so dustin's a movie buff like this guy's he's got a master's degree in movies if you can yeah. tell by his background there don't ask him what his favorite movie is it'll be like 20 minutes yeah what is your favorite movie <laughs> Uh, it's a uh, creature from the black lagoon. Creature from the black lagoon. Man, this guy's got. I actually saw it at the theater in 3D. So, um, Alamo Drafthouse did an amazing job getting that back into the theater. Are you excited about Top Gun Two, Will? Yeah. Yeah, me too. Of course, I love. Yeah. It. It's going to be tough to beat. <laughs> as long as uh. So I guess uh, Tom Cruise is hanging in there. That dude's, uh, he kind of weirded me out with the Scientology shit for a while, but um, <laughs> he's still doing it, man. The guy stays in amazing shape. He still looks yeah. young. He must be drinking all those kids' blood and shit, whatever yeah, they say they do in Hollywood. Vampire, probably. <laughs> he's just not a bunch of blow. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. So no ordinary dog, warrior dog. Let's talk about where you can get it. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. It's on Audible. Uh, it's on the Kindle. You can get it in hardback, softback, wherever fine books are sold. I will put a link uh, in this. I will edit the post later and put the link so that you guys can go there and pick it up. Please, please support Will. This is a truly, truly amazing book uh, about him, Cairo, and just to hear what uh, they did in the Middle East is just absolutely um, amazing. And, and how they got through um, both of their injuries and both of everything that happened to them together. Will, it was such an honor to have you on the show. Um, we are so happy that you came here. So happy that you told us about your book and so happy that you let us just tell your story. I appreciate you guys having me on there. Is there anything you would like to promote, Will? I think that's it, man. appreciate you pushing the book out there and um, hope everybody enjoys it. Jeff, anything you want to finish up with? No. Uh, well, um, Will, thank you so much. Thank you for your service. Um, what I think um, struck me the most about Will and his story is vulnerability can be a strength. Um, and, um, I think there's a lot to say about that and his story is amazing and um, it's for kids, grownups, whoever, and all in between. I think it's a story that needs to be, that needs to be heard, not just told. So at least he's telling it. People need to hear it. Yeah, guys, that's going to be it for this week. Make sure you go check out the book. No ordinary dog for the adults, warrior dog for the kids or warrior dog for the adults. 
maybe not no ordinary dog for the kids yet. Uh, let them get up there and age a little bit. Like we said, you can find it on Amazon, Audible, wherever you find fine books, you can find this story here. That's going to be it for this week. That's Will. That's Jeff. I'm DJ. We're the dads that drink. We'll catch you on the next one, guys. We'll see you later. Good night.